0: This podcast is a member of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts and content creators, visit bio.link red5. Hi, I'm Timothy Zahn, creator of Grand Admiral Thrawn, and you're listening to Conversations Podcast. Good for you. Hey, Pat and Charles. Cam here.
1: And uh,
0: And Bob. Always. Thank you. You kind of remind me of another favorite duo of mine. So this is for you guys. Catch it. You. Conversations, you're the one. You make Star Wars lots of fun. Yeah, you do. Conversations, made the force be strong with you. Sing it, Bubby. Zuby, Zuby, Zuby.
2: Yeah, Bub? Pat and Charles, you're so grand. Never afraid to lend a helping hand. That's true. Conversations, may the force be strong with
0: Absolutely be strong with. I see what you did. Oh, conversations, may the force be strong with you. you. May the
2: force be with you guys. Love you, dudes.
0: Hello and welcome to Conversations. I'm
2: Charles. And I'm Pat and this is episode 96. With any project comes trial and error and stepping outside the bounds of the traditional to create something inspired and original. Pulling back the curtain shows us an inside look at how these films were made and how these techniques changed cinema and the movie viewing experience forever.
0: Oh, (laughs) nice. (laughs) We are doing a behind-the-scenes episode of Star Wars.
2: Oh, I thought this was behind the scenes of our show.
0: Well, behind the scenes, you've got a nice Star Wars wall there.
2: <laughs> Too bad we're not on video.
0: Oh: <laughs> No one wants video of us, believe me. Face for radio. There we go. Ooh, hey! Who was that? A
2: familiar voice. <laughs>
1: hey, Oh. <ho.
2: laughs> this is Ro, everybody.
1: Woohoo! Hey, everybody.
0: Um, you know, you're Kind of late to come on our show. We're almost at 100 episodes and now you finally <laughs> to decide to, oh, let's let's scrape the bottom of the uh, Red 5 network and Brace uh,
2: them with a <laughs> good presence.
1: You know, the post office uh, is slow on the go with that uh, that invite. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Got lost in hyperspace, my friend. Right.
0: But thank you so much for joining us tonight, Ro. It's uh, an absolute honor to have you on, first of all, uh, as the podfather and the co-founder of the Red 5 Network. And what better episode to have you join us than this one, where uh, the the -the behind-the-scenes magic of Star Wars was going to, you know, not just within the original trilogy, but
1: all the movies. And
0: So thank you for joining us tonight.
2: Thanks for coming on, Ro.
1: (laughs) Excellent. I was saying that the honor is mine. Uh, You know, we... uh... We did a show a while ago uh, on Scarif, but it you guys are always in the chat and always uh, we're, we're interacting with each other constantly. It just seems odd that this is the first time that I'm here. <laughs> I do want to make a special mention. Pat, your Luke Skywalker standee behind you just moved on its own. It's weird.
2: It, hey, it does that. It does that <laughs> often. God. The he's, Force is with him. He's a bit of a rebel. <laughs> Well, Charles has loved behind-the-scenes Star Wars type stuff. Does that mean you haven't? Many for many more years than I have. Uh. <laughs>
1: gotcha. Okay. That that explains the gray in his beard, right?
2: Right, 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 right. But um, I found a fondness for it with the like the extras on the home home movies. I guess the uh, VHS and. um then, you know, with the special edition type of, like, releases of things where they would have how they were made and what they did and all. It was really something that I never thought about until then and was like, oh, well, this is great stuff. And it's, Star Wars uh, has some of the greatest stuff.
1: It really does. It's it, You know, I, I say this uh, a lot when we first started uh, Just It's one of the reasons that I got into the field uh, that I'm in, um, being a camera guy an editor a lot of that behind the scenes stuff to me was, was fascinating. And I think, um, you know, Star Trek has that same thing to it. You you get all this inspiration from these IPs. Um, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, you know, what job or what career would you like to have? And I think um, I mentioned Star Trek. Obviously, you got a lot of scientists that get into that, uh, you know, in that field. Um, with Star Wars, it's the same thing. You get a lot of People that really are interested in behind the scenes crafts, uh, model makers, editors, uh, camera people, all sorts of things that kind of stem from filmmaking. Um, It's you know filmmaking is one of those. I was gonna say there's no I in filmmaking. There's no I in team. There is an I in film. There's a couple of I's in filmmaking, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) But um, it really is a team effort. You know, you really have to um, you really have to work with a, a team of creatives to put together. Uh, You know, something out of nothing. You know, I always say that when when George Lucas put together his team of of rebels uh, that were, you know, the men and women from Industrial Light and Magic, they really, you know, it was a really a special time in the history of movie making. Because obviously, as we know, uh, Star Wars, and not only Star Wars, but the creative team behind ILM, really changed the look of, of, of films, especially genre films, science fiction, fantasy. And um, I, I can talk about that for days. You got how much time you got?
2: Days, days. That'll be enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you, you was- started. You started counting in episode ninety-one, so we can <laughs> we can do eight episodes of this. Let's go. We're gonna blast yeah. you right through okay, episode two hundred. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we'll just break it up. It's fine. I don't know who has to edit this, but good luck. Um, And that's the interesting thing about the whole genesis of like ILM and everything is, you know, George had these ideas and it's like, okay, well, how do I get them out of my head and onto the screen? And then those other um, avenues sort of opened up with, okay, so we need like engineers and then we need tech people. We need we need people from outside the business because the people in the business are so convinced that it can't be done. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And then you look at that, that ragtag group, you call them rebels, bro. It's it's a perfect name for it because what ended up becoming ILM or the foundations of ILM are you had some people who sort of understood the movie business, but for the most part, none of them did. They were, you know, some of them came from commercial making uh, and some film experience, but then you had engineers, you had people who worked on motorcycles, you had all these different pieces that came together individually, you know, you're not going to make an X-wing look like it's flying through a trench, but put all these five or six different caps on and then suddenly you have groundbreaking special effects that, you know, inspired an entire generation because of how successful those people and their individual talents meshed with the other ones and turned it into movie magic.
1: Absolutely. And I think um you know, one one of the things that I love about the uh, the history of ILM and, and and movie making, especially with Star Wars, is is that individual talent. I think um, you know, you hear names like um Ken Ralston and Dennis Murin. You've got John Dykstra who developed the camera that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll get into it in a second, the technical aspect of why that camera was so important in composing these shots of these spaceships flying, you know, through space um, to be able to uh, to be able to kind of harness that. And that's one of the things that George Lucas, you know, obviously did put th- these these individuals together and, and um, present them with a problem the ability to, to ponder that problem and really come up with solutions, each based on their individual talents, is, is nothing short of, of just a, a, it's a great thing.
0: Absolutely. It truly is. And I think that the once they came together, and I wouldn't say pedestrian, but I'd say the sort of basic uh, talents they brought to each one of the roles, you know, oh, this is nothing for me. It's, you just do this, do this, and do this. And... And suddenly it becomes magic. Like he said, Dykstra, for example, where they had the, um, mm-hmm. this computer controlled, and we're talking 1976, like a computer controlled camera. You know, you're just the infancy of the calculator, and the computer was just bursting onto the scene and using those types of controls to be able to repeat the camera passes from mm-hmm. you know, from perspective of a ship. That's where they were able to layer on all the different uh, special effects and do a pass for the ship and do a pass for the thrusters, do a pass for the lasers, whatever it is. It's no longer are you moving the ship in front of the camera, you're moving the camera around the ship. And that was mm-hmm. groundbreaking, but they had to build that from the ground up. It didn't exist. And that's where all yeah. these, these rebels came together. It's like, here's how we're going to build the car and then we're going to drive the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: that's one of the things that fascinates me. You said it. I mean, th- this technology did not exist. Um, you know, George Lucas put uh, a ton of money into the R&D of, of ILM before one shot was even, you know, created. Mm-hmm. Um, he put all these guys in a, uh, you know, guys and, and gals in a, in a warehouse in um, somewhere in California, up, up San Francisco area, whatever. But I, I, I find that fascinating, you know, not only um, from a behind the scenes aspect, but obviously my love of Star Wars, you know, this this universe, this uh, this environment did not exist. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they put it together to, to make it. But, you know, when it comes to the camera stuff, you know, I, I think um, I've always been fascinated uh, with gadgets and technology and things like that. And, you know, when when I'm a, when I was a kid learning about everything that those people did you know, creating the camera systems and, and how, you know, even stuff like what Ben Burke was doing in sound design, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what does R2D2 sound like? What does Darth Vader sound like? What does it sound like in space? Well, we have to figure it out. And I love the organic way in which Ben Mm -hmm. Burke specifically did that. Um, my friend and I, um, in, you know, seventh eighth grade we used to on our way to school we used to pass a telephone pole with a high tension wire oh. and we uh we would always take a rock and and go right past the alley and just put our ear to the high tension wire and then hit it nice and we would hear we would hear that damn pew, pew. <laughs> yeah that laser beam mm-hmm. and it impressed it, it impressed us so much that you know it, it just it's part of our DNA. It's part of our growing up, um, you know, just memories of us passing that, that stupid telephone wire. And, you know, you want to hear a laser beam this morning? Sure. Let's hit it with a rock. <laughs> and it's just, it's fascinating.
2: Well, yeah. And that's even, even down to like Chewbacca and Vader's breathing and all. It's like, okay, well, he's got this breathing apparatus. Then let's see what scuba gear sounds like. Gosh. Or, you know, you've got Chewy, it's like he's this this big ferocious animal. Let's let's see what a bear sounds like, and then also what a lion sounds like, and then you can kind of find that medium between them in editing and mixing and come up with something that's familiar enough that you can see where they're getting at, but also original in terms of like, oh wow, this is then becoming iconic.
0: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. These sounds, or even visuals or ships, they look like they could be real just, you know, in the future or in the past, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But there's that rooted in in reality that also gives it that layer of truth. Whether it's weathering, whether it's the rebels having sort of the hot rods versus the uh, the polish, the fit and finish of the empire. Those types of real world possibility brings you even further into the story because it becomes more relatable, aside from the characters, aside from the challenges they're going through. For me, as a, as a child, seeing those is like, well, that could be me, even though this is like a space fantasy that's well beyond the realm of possibility at, at this point.
1: You know, I think it was really genius uh, of George Lucas to add a sense of, um, we always hear that used look, that, that used galaxy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got these macro binoculars here and it's, it's weathered. It Mm -hmm. looks like it's been around the block a couple of times and, um, it does, it, it, it plays on your subconscious. It, it, it sets the stage for, you know, thinking to yourself while you're watching this movie, Oh, this has existed for a long time. This Mm -hmm, we're getting into this story. All this stuff has been around, so let's see what the story has to offer. And I think it's another aspect of the success of this franchise because it lends itself to more, uh, you know, more of a realism, um, especially with the props, obviously, that we're talking about. But you think of science fiction, you know, back in the '60s, and every
0: mm-hmm.
1: all the ships were shiny, and all the laser, you know, guns were 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 new. Um, uh-huh. There wasn't any carbon scoring on anything. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was polished, absolutely. And you're right, once you see these tools or these ships being uh, being used in a, in a battle and these uh, sweeping shots that, like we've already talked about with the, the Dykstra machine, like the Dykstra, what was it? The- uh, Flex. Dy- Dykstra Flex. Flex, thank you, there you go. Yeah. Giving these ships um, sort of a fluid life to them, you then buy more into the story because you're seeing this seamless transition from a science fiction story into something that you would see outside, like, oh, look, there's a ship flying overhead. You're so bought into the props that are almost secondary. They're so well done, they're secondary. That's one of the, like, that fine line of where special effects have become part of the story, but it's not impeding the story. And that's always been one of the Mm -hmm. hallmarks of Star Wars. I mean, this thing was done 45 years ago. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable to think
2: about that. Correct. Um, (laughs) I immediately identified with Han Solo, because whether it was my... Ford Taurus or my GMC Sierra, like you'd like say a little prayer every time you go to start the thing, because you never know, you never know.
1: Exactly.
0: Did your Taurus have that sidecar, like uh, on the? Uh,
2: uh, well, no, but when I pounded on the dash, it was it would power up. So
1: you hear me? I there? think
2: we were in business.
1: Perfect. I had a 1977 Ford Granada a lovely rust-colored gray uh, (laughs) exterior. And uh, yeah, I remember hitting the dashboard a couple times just to make sure it was alive.
0: And what a fascinating story the Millennium Falcon itself has, the entire design for that. Um, One of the things that George had said when he saw the designs or the sketches for the Millennium Falcon, that it had that sort of look of an elongated ship like we saw in space 1999. And what ended up sort of becoming the blockade runner, but the cockpit and the, uh, the radar dish, ex- you know, uh, was <laughs> managed to uh, make it onto the final design of the Millennium Falcon. But that's, again, it comes back to George's vision. He doesn't know what he wants until he sees it. When he sees it, bang, that's it. And that's, that's a microcosm of the entire story of how they built Star Wars from the ground up to match George's vision.
2: And how tough does it have to be to be Ralph McQuarrie? Oh, gosh. God. And George is like, I want you to do this. And you're like, uh, this is something I've never seen before. You're having a hard time explaining it, but you tell me that once I draw it, you'll know. (laughs) All right. Just keep drawing. Here we go.
1: (laughs) There's that story that people tell, uh, from ILM that George Lucas used to go around with a stamp, you know, approved. And he would just go up and to a, a, a drawing and stamp it, stamp it or reject it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's gotta be, uh it must've been hard.
2: And again, that's the thing too, is you've got these ideas. You're finally able to put them to some sort of visual medium to get people on board. Mm -hmm. And we did a, you know, the whole Ralph McQuarrie episode that basically focused on that. Yeah. Where, you know, the films wouldn't have been made if it wasn't for that. Just like, I think they wouldn't have been a success or maybe not even finished. If you didn't have the, you know, the other visual, um, Component enhancements and, and components mm-hmm. that, that sure. they did and and the sound editing and everything that they did um, in addition to just selling the idea for financial backing.
1: Yeah, Star Wars definitely was a perfect storm when it comes yeah. to mm-hmm. the creation of, of the first movie alone. You know, George didn't expect the, the movie to be um, as successful as it was, but um, it, you know, it definitely was a perfect storm. Um, between the creatives behind the scene every component like you said pat you know the the visuals the sound the editing um, yeah. we all know the story of the struggle that was suffered to be able to make this uh, film what it is today
0: yeah it's very much like uh, an independent studio putting together um, sort of this ragtag crew of artists whether like we said like sound design or John Williams and his music the special effects it had that rebel feel to the movie but it ended up becoming like this industry-changing blockbuster which it's completely opposite of what you would expect you know like what you'd think of a blockbuster today oh it has all the money it has all the backing it's just a matter of putting it out there and you know build it and they will come how close they were to literally the the day of they were you know making changes and edits before it went to the first screens when it was uh, going live after Lucas came back from England and shooting and seeing where or what the special effects department hadn't done and right. you know, building these, like we talked about before, they're building the car, then they could drive it. And once they started pounding out these special effects, obviously it was industry changing, but they were running up right up against the, the last minute to get this scene finished. And the cantina was another interesting tidbit was that after they had filmed the cantina scene, And I'm assuming that uh, Fox has seen the dailies and were so impressed with it, they got more money to do additional scenes at the cantina. And this is in January of 1977. They're going back in to do reshoots and adding more creatures. It's just like, I assume that many films have these sort of layers of like those, oh my gosh moments, you know, like, oh, how are we going to make this thing happen? But how they all came together to make this is like the new tentpole for everything to come after it. Literally running at the last minute. Can't be anything short of uh, you know giving someone a heart attack.
1: Yeah, imagine going to England to shoot principal photography, spending a million dollars on the folks at ILM, and coming back, you only have three shots done.
0: <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> oh, you wanted shots. Well, we've been having yeah. fun with the slip and slide. What did you want us to do?
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Damn hippies. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> Think that they came up with new and groundbreaking elements for really each of the projects Mm. you know the the original trilogy they you know they had to invent everything and then as technology advanced like for the prequels then they they had a whole different uncharted territory to kind of navigate through Mm. and then then the merger of those two for the sequel trilogy And and how they were able to bring in, like, you know, motion capture and things like that to really use beyond what they had to propel the technology and the story forward.
1: Yeah, I remember reading an interview with George Lucas before the prequels were um, announced and um, he had said that, you know, eventually he wanted to get back to Star Wars after Return of the Jedi. He wanted to continue to tell the story. But I remember reading that he said the technology does not exist yet um, based Mm. on the story that I want to tell. And like as a younger person, my mind was like blown because, you know, we had seen some really great movies up until that. And to hear him say the technology doesn't exist yet for what I want to do. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) geez um but it's just just you know thinking about it it's like what the hell is he going to give us um you know Mm -hmm. and i know the testing ground at lucasfilm at the time for the prequels was um the young indiana jones chronicles he wanted to you know create special effects and storytelling in that Mm -hmm. genre um on a television budget um Mm -hmm. obviously that television show was uh, lucasfilm's uh first foray really into um you know live action television you know being the consummate professional that he is uh to be able to want to tell you know some really great stories and visuals on a on a um the fraction of a budget that a regular indiana jones movie might cost uh that is where they came up with a lot of the technology for uh you know digital filmmaking and set Mm -hmm. extension and green screen you know uh photography and stuff like that so we owe a lot i think too to the innovation that that was employed for that series the young indiana jones chronicles And, um, you know, it just set the stage really for the next step in the evolution of ILM, you know, once uh, George was satisfied enough to say, "Okay, we're doing some very interesting things here to to save money, um, especially for the prequels, because this is the time when George Lucas said to himself, I'm going to write the check myself for the prequels. And Mm -hmm. he was he was able to do so. And again, you know, just I, I find that fascinating. He's hiring himself basically from his company to to do these films. And yes, he's got carte blanche, but he also has a responsibility to himself and the company to make sure that he's, you know, saving money. But I, I think um, makes me want to watch the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles again. I think, uh, you know, <laughs> when I when it first aired, I, I really enjoyed them for for a lot of reasons.
2: Well, number one, because you love Indiana Jones. That's <laughs> yeah, true, very true. <laughs> you know using that merger between practical and green screen and all really it they got so good at it that it's almost tough to see where that line is oh like for you see mean like
0: where do we yeah right 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 okay
2: right and now yeah uh, they used it very heavily as everyone knows in the prequels but then come sequels and even the uh the disney plus series you've got a mixture of practical and CG, and it can be tough to see
0: which is which. Absolutely. prequel trilogy sometimes are you know maligned for the use of CGI and you know there's certain cases where you can like blatantly see it. I mean they also had their share of practical effects it's not like George Lucas abandoned those things but he was always at that bleeding edge of technology and seeing what's possible and then turning the applications that they already had into we could animate this creature uh, Jar Jar and just have the actor have this headpiece. A lot of these actors and producers and movie makers didn't really have that experience and you know somewhat it can show in. Uh, the performances where they're in a setting somewhere in space, but they're, the actors are literally on a soundstage surrounded by green screens can be tough. So that's almost like the, the double-edged sword of being that leader in technology while trusting that the technology behind it is going to make it
2: fantastic.
1: Like and it, it be- was fantastic.
2: Yeah, and that's because they had invested so much time and energy into perfecting it. Absolutely.
1: Growing up, I watched a lot of behind-the-scenes documentaries, and you talk about perfecting the process. I guess not even the craft. Obviously, we're you know if we're talking about early ILM, um, the craft didn't even exist yet. But you know, in subsequent years, I, I just love hearing stories about the, the technicians trying to resolve an issue. You know, we the one thing that really comes to mind when it comes to that is the Dennis Murin story about uh, animating dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. And Mm. are we going to make them, you know, miniature? Are we going to do stop motion? And uh, the transformation of, uh, or I guess the evolution of special effects from practical stop motion to the digital dinosaurs that we all fell in love with in in Jurassic Park, the original film, um, came to be there, you know, obviously. We know how that happened, but just the process of being able to progress the craft and um, get to the next step, the next level of, of evolution with special effects behind the scenes, um, it's something that always fascinates me. And I think it's, it's, just, it's just really great.
0: It r- truly is. And that, that's where that break comes into the transition, like I think you were saying, Pat, where the, you've got the CGI and then you've got then the practical applications of that there's lots of scenes in the prequel trilogy one comes to mind is the the melding of the battle between obi-wan and anakin on mustafar and the volcano scenes you know they filmed those scenes i think it was in italy and mount etna and they juxtaposed those with obviously green screens still like that that entire lightsaber battle at the end is one for me one of the best first of all just the performances are phenomenal and the story parts are phenomenal but the mix of all of those digital and practical effects came together for such a pivotal mm-hmm. scene, sold that, you know, really made that entire scene work. And the, the performance of the actors, of course, sold it as well. But you can go too far on CGI or rely too much on practical. That was like one of those perfectly balanced parts of the movie for me.
1: Yeah, I want to ask you guys something. You know, we, um, as Star Wars fans, uh, we have a lot of Star Wars to kind of compare and, uh, you know, recently, uh, on our Twitter, we mentioned the fact that, you know, a lot of these star Wars shows look slightly different. And I know having done some research, there are certain, uh, there are different special effects companies that have been, uh, doing the special effects for Kenobi, for Book of Boba Fett, for, uh, for, uh, Mandalorian and now Andor. In doing the research, uh, yes, I, I, can, I can definitely see the difference between the companies and their roles in the special effects. Um, and I posted uh, the other day, uh, out of all the companies that do these special effects, guess what company does Andor and, um, and guess why it looks so good? ILM? Could it be? Yes. Wow. But my question is, as we grow as an audience, we are seeing a lot of movies between Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There is just Mm -hmm. so much nerd content out there that does require um, a lot of special effects work. It requires... You know, the filmmakers to give us some uh, some spectacular visuals because we need to suspend our disbelief in a way that helps us uh, relate to the story. but are are we as an audience, are we getting too sophisticated or sophisticated enough to really start to tell a difference between not only special effects companies? A lot of people probably don't, but we're starting to see people question certain, things mm-hmm. in sci-fi in fantasy
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you know a lot of people might not know what they're questioning what that is subconsciously it kind of plays with you but um it, it goes back to the question are we getting too much do you think we are getting too much sci-fi too much fantasy and that is making it harder for filmmakers to
2: please us hmm. i'm not getting too much <laughs> uh... i want more <laughs> yes uh Well, you know, I noticed that with Rogue One. So Rogue One, when they did the superimposed faces on Leia and Tarkin, I was like, this is fantastic. I love this so much. And, you know, Tarkin throughout the film, I was like, like if I didn't know Peter Cushing was dead, I'd mm. be like, they got him back. Yeah. <laughs> um, and was it perfect? No. But did you know it was Tarkin as soon as you saw him? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the same with Leia, you know, and now to a similar degree with Luke in The Mandalorian. But it's like, is it, you know, Mark Hamill from 1985? No, it's not. They didn't go back to in time (laughs) with their DeLorean and film scenes with, you know, 1985 Mark Hamill. Boo! Yeah, right? Like, idiots. Um, It's like they're making this up as they go. That being said, for what it is, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. and you know unfortunately you have people that are like well you could tell that it wasn't Peter Cushing or I could tell you that when he died you know 20 years before it was <laughs> made <laughs> Right. but that's not the point the point is that it's a convincing shot of Cushing's Tarkin you know and that's what they're going for and you know some people are going to love it and think that it's exactly perfect for the scene and other people are going to tear it apart
1: yeah, the Tarkin stuff in Rogue One. I was uh, I was prepared to um, that shot when you saw his reflection in, in the, the window, in the glass. Yes, the glass. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the Death Star is obviously being constructed uh, in you know in space. The camera you know does a close up. It starts to move in, and then the actor um, turns around, and you you know you start to see Tarkin. I expected the camera to cut away to a reverse so we can see Krennic reacting and mm-hmm. the scene continuing, but the camera stayed on him mm-hmm. and my head just exploded. I'm like, oh my God, they're not going to cut to, oh my God, it's Grand Moff Tarkin. Holy crap. Yep. I-, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I think ILM being uh, on the cutting edge of filmmaking technology, you know, it was their first real attempt at uh, digital face synthesizing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it was I I definitely think it's a it was a great success. And I know, you know, nowadays, especially with the Mandalorian, you know, budgets are smaller. I know they're playing around with the deep fake technology. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think again, I am, I will always be a fan of progressing the technology and filmmaking because I love the stories in the genre, sci-fi and fantasy, and there's really no other way to tell these stories if it weren't for the, uh, the help of technology.
0: I completely agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the difference between the Tarkin that we saw, I think it was in revenge of the Sith, you know, Mm -hmm. for a very short period. And then the Tarkin that we saw in Rogue One, separated by obviously you know years and technology and improvements and everything. But you know now we're getting into Disney money. And before we get into Disney, we're gonna take a quick break. And then when we get back from the break, Disney and the entire merger introduced an entire new generation to these movies and to the Star Wars galaxy. So we're we'll right back with that.
1: From from uh, the. Uh...
2: The lush planet of uh, Thyphira, we bring you uh, uh, Bacta. Yes, uh, whether whether you're recovering in a tank from a, uh, a, a fur, uh, furry bipedal beast attack on uh, some snowy planet, or, or being attended to by by a nurse nurse droid uh, sealing some scratches with with a spray.
1: This is a back-to-spray.
0: It will heal you in a matter of hours.
2: Yes, yes. So Back-to-health solutions is is there for you. Uh, yes, yes, you. And uh, we never stop innovating. Our industrial division is 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 working on large-scale tanks for species from locals to to ah uh, oh, yes, that tricky uh, beast yes I imagine. At Back-to-Health Solutions, we 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 strive. Healing solutions that bring you, um, well, <laughs> back to health.
0: Bow, bow. And we are back. Thank you to our uh, sponsors. Yeah, so we were just before the commercial break, we were sort of getting into the burgeoning technology and the support of Disney and after their merger and some of these new technologies. Uh, Ro, you brought up the Mandalorian. We've got the volume. Uh, We've got technology with the motion capture and how that's changing things and uh, mm-hmm. one of the favorite characters right now running in Andor, had a huge part in that. And um, again, seeing where Star Wars takes the, the current technology and then applies it and uh, makes it even better. And that's like where you're hoping for that every iteration of a story. You mentioned Boca of Boba Fett and Mandalorian. You're hoping that that Lucas uh, recipe always includes that rebellious nature of using the best technology you can, turning it on its head and turning it into something magical that just blows your mind.
1: But, you know, you talked about the merger of technologies, the Mandalorian, or I, I guess any Disney era, you know, streaming show really does have a, uh, a, a good mix of the technologies from the past and the technology of the future. One of the things that I, that I really enjoyed when I learned about the fact that um, they were going back to doing some practical photography for the mandalorian season one i read that uh you know they went into a garage and created the kind of a mini dykstra flex they used a 35 millimeter camera rig and um they started machining parts for this you know small rig that they had camera attached to and they did the passes just like back in the day and i thought that was (laughs) I don't know. It's it's fascinating to me just sitting around a campfire and just talking about like, you know, what what are we going to do? You know what? Let's go machine some uh, camera parts in the garage. We'll we'll figure something out. (laughs) It's just just amazing to me. It's like next level thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. on, on a creative aspect. And, you know, as, as we know, The Mandalorian was also, you know, pushing the envelope in small screen special effects. We've obviously, mm-hmm. you know, had uh, Dominic Pace, our friend, talk to us about the LED screens. You know, at the time it was very new. Nobody knew that, that uh, the production was using that curtain of screens that, uh, that everyone knows now as uh, the, uh, the volume or stagecraft yeah. technology. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, not that it's coming full circle. I, I, I don't want technology to come full circle. I want it to be uh, um a straight line heading forward, borrowing from things from the past mm-hmm. to to get to the next step. And I think, you know, small screen Star Wars I think definitely does that with uh the the advent of the volume and, and the technologies that they're using. But yeah, it's 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 amazing. I love it.
2: I know that Charles had mentioned the uh motion capture aspect. Yeah. And yeah. I think he was alluding to Snoke. However, I <laughs> uh, I feel Andy Circus's motion capture work has, has been much more showcased in other uh well, other yes, avenues. Yes.
0: Well, I mean I was uh, speaking, but... he was Gollum in Lord of the Rings and Right um, and Caesar. And Caesar, right, Planet right in Planet, a- Planet of the Apes. Started his own company for motion capture and doing very well but... with it. Yeah. Mo Capture was actually referring to a note that you had made about Mall in season seven of yeah. the Clone Wars, and now we're talking animation, of course, but we're talking real-world technology and using motion capture to enhance that.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, you had the physical nature of Ray Park's mall, yes, and and his lifelong dedication to you know his craft of you know martial arts and athleticism in that respect, and. That's part of what made the choreographed fight scenes in the prequels so, well, in one of the prequels, um, (laughs) so, so fascinating was like, you go from one-on-one duels in the original trilogy that are, you know, you swing here, you block there, to (laughs) this guy fighting off two Jedi, Yeah, which, first of all, is wild to see, Mm -hmm. um... Just because, you know, the duel itself is so much more energized. Right. And then to see this guy convincingly defend against and attack these two warriors is outstanding. So it makes sense when you have that character back in in animated form that you would, one, pay homage to that Mm -hmm. by having him just, just be as cunning and ruthless as as he was in the phantom menace but then also if you're gonna have a duel that features him it better look like him it better move like him so then you you bring in ray park and and do motion capture and then integrate that into the animation and you've got your fight scene
1: yeah and that's what i'm talking about when it comes to you know having the technology move forward but borrowing from the past They didn't have to bring Ray Parks in to to animate, you know, but it's that extra thought process of, uh, you know, staying true to the character, um, doing something new, doing something. uh, And I I don't even want to say doing something new because motion capture was not new. But the idea of bringing this character back from the past to influence the future, I think, is 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 really great. And again, that's 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 what I'm talking about. You know, as far as the linear aspect of of technology, uh, to be able to kind of leap forward by using the steps that are already in place, and I, I find that great. I think um, Star Wars is great about doing that because obviously they are, uh, you know. When you think of special effects in filmmaking, you, you know, number one, you come to ILM. You think of George Lucas. You think of Star mm-hmm. Wars. So it's uh, it, it's only natural that that it, it that it's still happening, and I hope that it continues to happen. You know, even after Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney, I'm hoping that uh, there are still innovations for for fans to take advantage of, and for the technicians behind the scenes to uh, to really play up and and develop more when it comes to uh, to movies and things like that,
0: for sure. And I think you you brought up just before the break about you know are we getting too much sci-fi? And I'd agree with Pat and probably you is that no, there's never enough of it. Um, I think that our level of expectation maybe changes, um, especially as content producers and sort of looking at every angle of these stories. Uh, certainly has you know the blessing and the curse because we're looking at these things critically, but it comes back to the story, and if the story is good uh, regardless of how some of the practical effects are coming into it that is always the the golden success of a story where the special effects are enhancing it
1: absolutely and the innovations when it comes to editing um, Uh which is very close to my heart ilm and george lucas developed a digital uh way of editing they coined it uh the edit droid it was basically uh, the world's first nonlinear editing system. The, they used um, they used digital files, but it was basically uh, a laser disc of Return of the Jedi that they used to to demonstrate this uh, this NLE or nonlinear editing system. And um, it opened up the industry so much for for the rest of the world to be able to edit videos, not splicing film together with uh, with a splicing uh, device. Again, it democratized uh, the way that uh, that people present video. Obviously, we can all edit on our phones, our back pockets. Uh We've got uh, the ability to edit digital files. Not to pat myself on the back, but my video production company was one of the first um, uh, companies in the Midwest to buy The AVID nonlinear editing system, which is a direct descendant of the edit droid. And I was very proud of that because of my affiliation to Star Wars and my love of it. (laughs) you know many innovations behind the scenes in in every aspect of the world of, of filmmaking i think you know this is a great episode guys because it really it shows you that the innovations of filmmaking really um they're not really encompassed in just one aspect of movie making. Mm-hmm. you know you know i mentioned editing obviously sound and and mm-hmm. and design and and everything you know the the first digital camera you guys were talking about uh, the prequels george lucas didn't want to shoot on film anymore God. Uh, Um, the ability to shoot digitally was, uh, very advantageous to, to directors like George Lucas. And I know George Lucas got a lot of flack for it, but Mm
2: -hmm.
1: movies are, are shot digitally now. And again, you know, um, giving regular Joe Schmoes like us, the ability to shoot movies digitally again with the little device in our pockets. Um, and again, I went to town and I bought one of those damn cameras for my (laughs) video production company. You know, when uh, when it was first available to the industry. So uh, I mentioned it early on. I'm a gadgets guy. I love technology and uh, Star Wars uh, and technology is definitely a marriage of the two. And uh, I will forever be in debt to uh, industrial light magic, literally, because the edit system and the (laughs) camera that I bought cost a fortune.
2: (laughs) It's
0: It's It's worth it, though. Um, It's funny you bring up the digital editing system. One of the most beloved characters actually comes from um, an editing process that uh, Lucas was using during the editing of American Graffiti. Him and the editor, were uh, they came up with a a jargon that they use for reel 2 and dialogue 2, and they just shortened it to R2 and D2. I had no idea this is where the name came from. And that's how Lucas worked with uh, behind the scenes with these characters. He would just jot these things down. So that's a nice callback to how far advanced the editing process has come. But if it weren't for the process that existed beforehand, R2 would maybe name something different. Who knows?
1: I just realized that I must be like a, an ILM uh, <laughs> shill, too. Because oh boy, when the morphing software came out, I liked it so much that I bought a version of of (laughs) the first morphing (laughs) software on the Mac. We did some commercials with uh, logos that morphed into some other stuff, but um, I never realized how much of a shill I was for (laughs) ILM even. (laughs) I've been
2: keeping him afloat.
0: Um, Pat was the one who first had brought up the story of Warwick Davis and how he became one of the sort of cornerstone ambassadors for Star Wars not only because he played Wicket in Return of the Jedi, but then also, you know, he was with the hero in Willow. Talking about ILM was one of the cornerstone pieces to a new burgeoning technology called Morphing, where they had this magic user female, and they had, she had to transform while Willow was casting this spell. She was transformed between like a goat and a... Ostrich, or whatever, and a lion. And once George saw that, he saw that this is like, again, another leap forward in technology. And uh, to see then Warwick Davis come back for the sequel trilogy and reprise his role in The Rise of Skywalker, um, it's a wonderful story for bridging the past into the future.
2: I would agree. And, um, you know, Anthony Daniels still um, having to shove himself into the C. Um, <laughs> Creepio suit. Whereas you've got uh, people like uh, Alan Tudyk that uh, just put on a uh, spandex suit with a bunch of uh, like uh, black and white lines and stuff on it. And he can have all the yeah. hamburgers he wants. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> it, it still fascinates me that Anthony Daniels was still able to fit in that suit. You would think that, okay, well, maybe we can make some adjustments on the maybe the waist got a little bigger, but I mean, C-3PO still looks... As svelte as he did in, uh, in the seventies,
2: unlike Data in Star Trek: Next Generation. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's. I mean, that was an upgraded android. Um, whereas C three PO needs no upgrades. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing: is you either have to explain that, or do it uh, with, like without abandon, and then have the audience be like, "What's what's going on here?"
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, like, obviously uh, audiences have to figure out that okay, well, the actor's old.
2: Right. Er. <laughs> er um right but yeah but like you look at the terminator you know in the first few movies it's like all right cool and then you see him old and you're like wait a minute is this is a different <laughs> model is this a T like 80,000 i don't right. understand <laughs> um because you have to you can't have the same robot like looking old right cuz robots don't look old no. they might they might rust but they don't look old i mean you can change arm color all you want <laughs> but might but, not recognize them though you, you might not and that's that's the uh, risk you take is um you know nerds. people need to know it's C3PO so you know you got to keep the suit <laughs> the fact that we got that is fantastic um but you
0: bring up a great point though like with the disney purchase right and then the financial uh investment in that became a, an important part of it and star wars was huge and we had star tours, we had, you know, in the parks, and they had these new lands coming. So how are you going to support that? Well, it's going to be new stuff. And then you got, like you mentioned, Ro, you got Disney Plus and The Mandalorian and all these new series coming out. Um, And it started with Force Awakens and JJ and how he really embraced uh, the practical effects and how he tried to do as much as he could to Mm -hmm. imbue the sequel trilogy with these practical effects to make sure that it still had that an, an homage to the original trilogy and doing everything in camera as much as possible and enhancing with the story itself. And it was great to see some of those behind the scenes uh, or like Pat was talking about, like the extras, the DVD extras, where you know BB-8 is literally someone running the, the little ball across the screen. It's not a, an animated uh, a droid. That spirit of filmmaking was wonderful to see.
2: And I think that he was... Going for that same sort of visual feel that you got in the original trilogy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the best way to replicate that is to do it the same way, same way. <laughs> You yeah, know within yeah. reason, yeah. you know, and and without abandoning the new technology that exists but to lean in heavier on that sort of style of filmmaking you do accomplish that you you make it feel like it did when he fell in love with it in the 70s these sort of ebbs and flows based on on the story you're trying to tell you know if you're going to otaganga to upgrade your insurance perhaps <laughs> i don't know um if you're headed to otaganga you're gonna you. Y- <laughs> thank you Gesundheit. um you're going to lean in heavily into the cgi right because those because practically, they don't exactly yes but then you know when you're going through the streets of aldani you can be 100% practical effect or 95% practical effect. You know, Mm -hmm. it really depends on on where you are in the story and how you're telling it. You know, you have all these tools in the box that you can, you know, take this one for this scene or that one for for that uh, line of storytelling and really conceivably tell that story.
1: Yeah, you know, filmmakers nowadays have so many tools, it really does come down to creative management and the decision making that they employ in order to, I guess, in order to carry out the production of that scene. you know, we talked about the volume, you know, during the, um, the release of the first season of Mandalorian, we got some really great, you know, visuals and people were not used to it. And, um, as we got closer and closer to the end of that first season, you know, obviously you had the second season, you had book of, uh, Boba Fett, you know, I think our eyes were starting to get used to that. Um, and obviously the biggest reason that the volume was created was, um, innovation, obviously. But you know they wanted to save money. They wanted to be able to shoot a sunrise scene all day if they wanted mm-hmm. to, because they mm-hmm. could just dial up the scene on the screen and yeah. be there for ten hours or whatever, and just continue to shoot and not have to be you know dependent on mother nature. It's it's pretty amazing. I think you know when it comes to decision making of these tool sets, uh, you have to really give props to the filmmakers because they do have besides the practical aspect of making movies you know what camera do we use, what film stock should I use what aspect ratio what you know what crew do I use and I think um, a lot of things can go wrong um, when mm-hmm. it comes to these decisions and I think when you know audiences like I said you know I think audiences are getting a little more sophisticated mm-hmm. not only in the perception of the special effects but also the critiques of said special effects yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, the genre expects us to suspend our disbelief, but I think we are getting a little, we might be getting a little too critical over the look and feel of certain things, and we're not enjoying the story. Right. But it's interesting, too, because, you know, George Lucas said, you know, you can have the best special effects, but if the story is is not yeah. great, then that's going to distract you, too, so… I think a great film is is a movie that um employs all of these techniques but has a a definite balance between everything. And it is. It's it's spinning plates. It's juggling so many things to be able to give your audience, you know, the best that you can at the time.
0: Oh, for sure. To so you throw in a worldwide pandemic while season yeah. 2 of the Mandalorian was being filmed and the start of the Book of Boba Fett. I mean, the volume then became almost this Safe haven for a movie production. You had a controlled area. You had the ability to limit, you know, like the social distancing that was required at the time. You could tell that there were certain background images that just was a volume, but it still allowed the entire thing to be made. And would they have approached it differently if they had the option? Perhaps, you know, nothing taken away from the series, but you then look at Andor and all of the real life locations that are being used. (laughs) Again, comes back to the original trilogy. You, you're, you're looking at in camera practical effects and it just grounds it in reality. That brings you right into the story. So you're focusing on mm-hmm. the foreground and the characters in the story and it just propels it further.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say something that'll make uh, Pat real happy. I think, you know, the technology when it comes to the volume, I think Star Trek was ahead of its time uh, <laughs> back in the 1990s when you had the holodeck. Holodeck. <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, George might have said, wait a, minute, wait a minute, maybe we can do something like that. <laughs> we'll call it the
2: volume. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it the holiday. I mean, the volume. Oh, well, all right. I mean, you got me there for sure. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry, you son of a... Well, that's the other part of it, too, is you have these things that are conceived in science fiction or in fantasy that okay well how do we bring this to life mm. how do we explore this in a way that's believable um like from the Jason and the Argonauts type stop yes. motion to the rancor and from broom handle wrapped in foil for a lightsaber um, <laughs> to get that effect to the illuminated blades of the prequels and sequels Mm. um so so you're kind of taking these ideas from things that don't exist and finding a way to to not only make them exist but serve your story and make it believable
1: you mentioned uh jason and the argonauts how wild is it that the the technology of stop-motion photography um like what we saw in jason of the argonauts has survived, what, almost three decades. You know, we still saw some stop motion in uh, the original trilogy. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, you know, 30 plus years of a technology being so sound that filmmakers said, you know what, we can't really improve it. Um, Let's just continue to use it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it still comes
0: back to where in the story you are what is the best application for the technology you have? Is it practical? Is it CGI? Right. Is it a mix of both? It has to enhance it and it makes it less believable or more believable if you're being distracted by what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it a challenge to get over. Right. Hopefully you have the people in the productions like, you know what, I think we could approach this more. Yeah, it may take an extra five or six hours, but it, it, it'll serve the story better if we do it this way.
2: And I think George was smart enough to know like Ro was saying with the prequels like there's more story I want to tell. I can either tell it now and have it look incredibly cheesy and have no one buy into it because the technology isn't there. Mm. Or I can wait until technology catches up to be able to do what I want. And that's, that's where it comes into are we there yet? Let's, let's test this. Let's try that. And you know, when you realize, OK, we're still not there, then, OK, we're going to hold off another five, six years and yeah. try again yeah. and kind of see where we are and how conceivable, how, you know, how it goes over with test audiences, and stuff like that, where like, OK, are we are we at that point now where we can utilize this tech in such a way that will bring my vision to life? Right. Tell the right. Mm hmm.
1: And, you know, a lot of people give George Lucas flack for the special editions. um, But one of the things that I admire about George Lucas is, you know, we know the problems that he went through producing the original Star Wars. As an audience, I don't think we had any issue with how it looked. But then again, we weren't producing it, we weren't directing it, we didn't have the problems, we didn't live through the problems that he did. Um, And then getting back to the special editions, you know, when it was time to do the prequels, he had a new set of toys. And Mm -hmm. I know, like I said, he got a lot of flack for going back to the original Star Wars and adding things or changing things, you know, Mm -hmm. things that he saw that he didn't really like. But I I, I think that's kind of cool to be able to. I, I don't think a director has had the ability to do that after the fact so many years from the original film. It's a privilege, obviously, that George Lucas has because of who he is, uh, the creator of this of this galaxy. And um, some of the things in the special editions look a little better than other things. But the the fact that he did it, I think um, it's, it's like a badass move, you know, from from a director's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's my stuff. I can do what I want. And he did it. And uh, take it or leave it.
2: <laughs> it's the ultimate director's cut.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're right. I mean, the amount of tinkering he's
0: done. I mean, he's the creator for as much as the special editions I didn't like a certain things. and He's proven to be one of the, uh, not, not obsessive, but I think that he's definitely a perfectionist, right? With his story. And he had mm-hmm. his challenges. I mean, he even filmed Jabba the Hutt as this Scandinavian-looking gangster for A New Hope. I think it was part of the Night's Watch. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
2: Like, what do you do with that project? jacket? <laughs> is that the buddy? wall?
0: So it, that was part of his original vision of the story, was that Jabba was in A New Hope. So had he d- the technology, that he would have done it, but he ultimately edited it. Let's not just uh, discount the incredible job that Marsha Lucas did in editing, because we may not have this Star Wars franchise we're talking about right now, if it weren't for her as well. But one of the parts that I've read that he talked about is that who shot first? Han, you know, the whole back and forth that he's done and how many iterations of that. And like on Disney Plus, we've seen so many things and much maligned. But um, he had said that the original close up of that filming was misleading. And this is from an interview in 2012, by the way, where he said that the intention was always to show that Greedo did shoot first. You know, to, you, you did it, but you didn't stop to ask yourself if you should. That's almost like that line from Jurassic Park. <laughs> you know, sure. you, you have the ability, but did you need, really need to do that?
2: Right, and additionally, it's Han shot only. <laughs> and, and secondly, like, George Lucas was on set of, I want to say it's Revenge of the Sith, wearing a t-shirt that said Han shot first. So, wh- no. What do you want? No. No, no. Let's listen, try. Listen, uh, you know, Han shooting first makes him look like a, a bad guy. Uh, I got news for you. He was a bad guy. <laughs> that's, that's that's part. I mean, I, I don't want to tell George how to tell his story, but uh, that's the redemption art for it. There you go. Like, he wasn't a great guy, and then he became a great guy. So you're welcome. It's like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> <Yeah>. See? <laughs> See? He gets it. <laughs> right? It's like we've been talking the whole, the whole show. It's one of those things where like, as technology advances, uh, what do you do with that? do you improve something you've already done that's passable to make it more like your vision or do you leave well enough alone? Mm-hmm. And then in future projects, okay, what can you get away with that's cost effective? Um, but also helps to sell that visual or mm-hmm. that you know, storyline in some way. Yeah. And at this point with you know, Lucas out of the
0: picture, essentially with Disney and their own, Sort of roster of people who are now taking the story and the universe and making it their own. Um, they have to face those similar challenges and make their own vision of what you know these characters uh, you know created by or inspired by George Lucas. You see it in every one of these mm-hmm. productions, and it's a burden, definitely a burden, because there's so many people invested in this entire galaxy. Each one of these series, whether it be B- Book of Boba Fett, uh, Mandalorian, the Kenobi series, and now Andor, and you have 45 coming up a 50 years soon, of history that they're being judged by. And mm-hmm. it all comes back to day one of A New Hope, a, a small movie that was built by a bunch of rebels that you know George Lucas himself didn't think was going to make any money. But he banked on himself, he banked on the production crew, and it turned into a worldwide sensation we're still talking about today. And that's the the legacy of that is... <laughs> How do, you, how do you manage that, that precious little package of Star Wars? Like, sure, I'll do a Star Wars, and then you're, you're on day one of the set, like, oh my God, I'm doing a Star Wars.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Don't screw up. Yep. Yeah, I can't imagine.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, well, I want to do something new and different, but do I subvert expectations <laughs> or do I give people what they've seen before?
1: Damn it, Pat. I told you I don't have any tequila.
2: (laughs) Oh, man.
1: (laughs) That's funny, though, too, because, you know, from a special effects standpoint, you know, beforehand, let's take the prequels into account. You had actors uh, doing their thing in front of a green screen, and then the post-production process would create the backgrounds for those performances. Now you're working Mm -hmm. backwards. You have to make the environments first to be able to plug them into the volume before the actors get there. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about. Full circle,
2: so there's uh, a it's distinct advantage to that as well. Because, sure, oh for sure, you can interact with your environment now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm-hmm. becomes a another component to selling the story. Right. When when you don't have to believe that this tennis ball is, you know, the <laughs> the front end of such and such. It's like, right. yeah, it's right there. I can see it. I can interact with it. You know, to a certain degree, because. Yeah, because I see it. I know you know my my line of sight is it's not right only yeah. on track, but also like even to the point where like you know the the lighting from the volume would would light up the actors. That's kind of what made the the newer lightsabers more believable. Is you had yeah they were illuminated, mm-hmm. so that glow would go on to the actor's face. Whereas you know when it's put in in post. Then you have to remember to illuminate the actor's face in a believable way based on where the saber is and stuff. So all that kind of stuff is like it's less work in post, uh, but it's also more more tangible than a screen behind you or, or a block like um, when you and McGregor invited one of his friends to the filming of Revenge of the Sith when he was dropping Luke off to his aunt and uncle that it was that scene that they were filming that day. So, you know, he's all excited. They get there, and he's on a green screen, mechanical bull type of saddle. Okay. And then gets off of it, drops off the bundle to Owen and Baru. Okay. Who are in front of a green screen, and then gets back on the green screen saddle backwards, and then it moves around, and he's rocking like this on it. As he goes away. <laughs> and his friend is like, What was that? <laughs> because it was nothing. It was a bunch of nothing.
0: And, and he just he reacted. Has he react? Wow. Wow.
2: Yeah. And so it was like the burden was purely on the actors to sell the scene when it's like, oh boy. You know, like <laughs> I feel like that's that's not rock. That's, that's, that's not a, yeah. <laughs>
0: There's so much more that we could talk about, but um, we're going to cap this episode here. And uh, once again, Ro, thank you very much for joining us and, you know, lending us ugly stepchildren of the Red 5 Network a signal boost with the podfather himself. Where can um, people find the Scarif podcast?
1: Sure. You know, we... um... Early on, we said uh, we can talk about uh, special effects and behind the scenes for days. We uh, we started uh, we started on Sunday and it's like, what, Thursday? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, well, uh, Friday it's long, now it's
0: after midnight. Right. Exactly. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, that's a lot of uh, a lot of talk. But um, absolutely. Anytime I'd love hanging out with you guys and talking Star Wars or any other nerd topics. Uh, love uh, hanging out and chatting with you guys. You guys are always fun. So, yeah, the Scarif Podcast. Find us wherever you find your other favorite podcasts. We are available everywhere. Uh, Like you said, part of the Red 5 Network. You can check out our podcast at uh, bio.link slash red5. Uh, You guys are there, too. We we know how to party. (laughs) We do.
2: (laughs) We do. Speaking of which, is it too early to talk about the next Scarif Con? It's never too early to talk about the next (laughs) Scarif Con. (laughs) All right. (laughs)
1: You know, I'm starting to have ideas floating around over here, so uh, we'll we'll see. I know there was some talk about uh, maybe getting to a place where we um, are sharing an event, or at least uh, sharing the date of an event uh, here in Chicago. Um, I know C two E two is in April, so maybe there might be some synergy. Um, But um, you know, again. It's one of those things where I want to be able to to add more cool things to do and and hang out. You know, dinner was absolutely a wonderful, wonderful time. You guys are spending so much money coming to Chicago. I just don't. I, I don't want it to become like a like I got to pay for flight and hotel, and then I got to pay to hang out with Roe. <laughs> you know,
2: you do so, make an interesting point. <laughs> But let's but, not forget, in July we have uh K2SO. <laughs> there's 2 E2, there's K2SO. Yeah. yeah, I mean there's you know.
1: <laughs> I thought you were talking about a, a Mexican dish, K2 queso queso oh, yeah. eso.
2: Queso queso ese. Uh, yeah. Queso, queso? There you go. Right? right? Yeah. So, yeah. Now I'm si, hungry. See, si mucho queso. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Uh can they eat my food? <laughs> uh, that's, that's yeah sad. so i mean i'm excited i think he's excited oh i'm very excited um, yes i was talking about Ro. oh yeah okay. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> well so i guess um what do we have to close this thing out <laughs> yes
0: we have socials apparently somewhere
2: yeah Ro, thanks again for uh being here to to hang out with us and to give us some of the inside scoop on um some of your favorite uh, behind-the-scenes uh, Star Wars stuff. We are online. We have our website, uh, conversuations.com. We are on facebook.com slash conversuations. At suations on Twitter. Conversations on Instagram. We are part of the... Red 5 Network, as Ro pointed out, we have a link tree that has all of our fun and exciting stuff on it. And Just kidding. It's only that stuff. Uh, it's <laughs> link.tree slash And, of course, the Red 5 bio link that uh, that Ro has shared previously. Mm-hmm. That'll finish us out here. Right. So, I I, I mean, uh, I don't know. What do you want to do? Ro?
1: Hola, amigos. Soy Diego Luna. Quiero comer mi queso con los boys de Conversations. Greetings,
0: listener. Just a reminder that the podcast you just heard is a proud member of the Red 5 Network family. red 5 offers you a great variety of shows you'll be sure to love. So the next time you're itching for quality content,
2: make sure you head over to red5network.com.
0: You'll find this podcast along with a whole lot more.
2: All wings report in. It's the Red 5 Network.